You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Good middle of the day. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education. Delighted to have you here today. Uh, we have a wonderful speaker. Dr. Thomas Ridd is visiting us from London, so it's a real privilege to have him here. And I was, I was telling him that our museum has been very committed to cyber espionage, cybersecurity um, issues uh, for some time, and our founder, Milton Maltz, had um, had us working on and put into place a very interesting gallery in our exhibition, Weapons of Mass Disruption, talking about infrastructure attacks. I mean, it was very prescient, and a number of government officials from the city have visited. It really was kind of ahead of its time, very uh, important people speaking, James Woolsey, former DCI. Really good show, and I, I hope you'll have a chance to see it. But... Um, when I sent around the materials to prepare for this fall schedule, um, Milt said to me, everything looks great, but, you know, there's, that, there's one program you have, and I'd really, the title is Cyber War Will Not Take Place. I'd really like to change that title. And I said, oh, we can't do that. That's Dr. Ridd's, the topic of his book, because Milt is very committed that cyber attacks are happening, and as we know from the media, they are all the time. But so far, we've been seemingly successful at working around them. Dr. Ridd knows so much more about that and will tell us about that. He has been a visiting scholar at the Hebrew University and the Shalem Center in Jerusalem. He's worked at the School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, the RAND Corporation here in D.C., and um, I'm not going to say it in French, but um, the French International Relations um, Institute in Paris. And as he says, although he's very schooled in cyber war issues, as you'll know from his talk and his new book, he's not a one-trick pony. He has written on many topics in the world of espionage and terrorism. He's written Understanding Counterinsurgency, War 2.0, and War and Media Operations. He is a frequent commentator in the international media and today, uh, his article appeared on Slate entitled, The Rest of Snowden's Files Should Be Destroyed. So, we may have some interesting questions for Dr. Ridd. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. 
So I hope this works. I'd like to walk around and come a little closer since we are um, only a few people today. And which is nice, I appreciate that, because it can be more interactive. So let me say we, we can almost handle, almost handle this event like a seminar. So if I'm saying something that you don't understand and want me to explain, uh, feel free to, to interrupt me. I will speak for maybe 25 minutes, and then we have a Q&A. Um, so cyber war will not take place, I think, um, certainly is a controversial title. And also the pink background adds to it, I suppose. Uh, why, why am I coming forward with such a bold statement? So first of all, I'd like to say that I'm actually not talking about the future in the book. The title is a pun on a theater play. And the entire spirit of the book is very much fact-driven. The ana analysis is looking at the history um, and at, at the empirical record of computer attacks that we've seen to date, very close to the primary original sources. And the book is looking at the technology and the technological possibilities of attacks. There is enough speculation in this debate already. It's important to be very close to the sources, close to the facts on the ground. So that's the general approach that I'm taking. So why the skepticism? in the title. When I started to work in the Department of War Studies in, 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 London, in London two years ago, my head of department, my boss, used to introduce me to uh, other colleagues and to, to um, contacts by saying, oh, this is Thomas Ridd. He's our cyber war expert. And I always, always cringed when he said that. I mean, first of all, let's remember we've never seen a single human being being hurt or injured or killed um, as a result of a computer attack. And if you have a guy sitting next to you in the office writing books about the Battle of the Somme in the First World War, and, and then you're just a little careful when you use the, the expression war. So the purpose of this entire book is to realize, okay, when a lot of people, when they talk about cyber war, they're using a metaphor like the war on drugs, the war on cancer. They're using a metaphor, lots of cyber attacks are happening. Obviously, they are happening, and, and that's a serious problem, just like drugs and cancer are very serious problems. And, of course, the possibility of a computer attack that has serious military consequences is also, you know, it's in the realm of the thinkable. It's not impossible. In other words... The purpose of this book is to peel away the metaphor from the real thing. When does it actually make sense to talk about cyber war as in real war? And when does it make sense to talk about cyber weaponry, for instance, com weaponized computer code, as opposed to just listening devices? So um, the microphone, for instance, that I'm using right now, would you call that a weapon? Very few people would be ready to call that a weapon, I think. But software that uses the microphone that you have in your telephone or in your computer, in your pocket right now, many people call that software a weapon. But it's doing, de facto, it's doing exactly the same thing as this microphone. It's, receive, it's recording information and sending it to somebody else. That alone isn't uh, weaponizing code yet. So what is? And, and I'd like to start with a big question. Um, 
obviously you've seen the press coverage on, on cybersecurity and cyber war and the uh, even very serious outlets like The Economist, um, Time Magazine, speak about cyber war. Uh, I think less so now, but maybe one year ago, or still, cyber war was a big topic, a big buzzword that very few people questioned. I think some of that is already changing. So let's um, ask very briefly, what is war? Because that's really at the, at the foundation of, of, of this, of this uh, understanding of cyber war. War, and I'll do this very quickly, has, uh, if you look at classical st strategy, classical theory of war, war is acts of war, the use of force has three features. First, it's violent, or at least potentially violent. That's very straightforward. Second, it is instrumental. Act, uh, act, uh, war is an act of force to compel our enemy to fulfill our will in the classical formulation. So it's not just force for the sake of using force, but it's using force in order to uh, achieve a goal. So it's instrumental. And thirdly, it's political. Political in the sense that somebody has to say, I, I did, almost always, I did this to you and to achieve a specific objective. Somebody takes credit for the use of military force, of, of political violence. Now, there are exceptions to this. this the chemical attacks in Syria are an interesting uh, illustration here because nobody's stepping forward and taking credit for them. But historically speaking, that is a huge exception. So I challenge you to just come up with another example where somebody's not taking credit for using force. Uh, of course, there are examples like drone strikes, um, but again, in the larger history, this is a, a, rare, uh, a rare instance. And it does happen in the context of cyber attacks quite often. I'll talk about that in a, mo in a moment. The notion of violence is, is, um, is very important here because violence... Usually when we talk about cyber war, um, people assume that this creates more violence. Now people can use computers can, in, in order to uh, bring down the power grid and cause huge destruction, for instance. But in fact, if we look at the, uh, at the uh, empirical record of cyber attacks, what has happened actually has happened. We're seeing less violence, not more violence. So I'll give you a couple of examples to make that point. One big set of computer attacks we can describe as sabotage attacks, using computer code in order to sabotage a specific system, and say a power plant in, or a pipeline. Um, for those of you interested in, in history, there's a... Uh, an example in the, in the literature that is often uh, cited and repeated, in 1982, apparently, uh, that's what the sources are saying, the, the CIA um, used faulty hardware equipment with, and with faulty software built into the equipment, had it shipped via Canada to Russia, 
where it was installed in a pipeline. Um, and in 1982, uh, sometime in the summer, apparently they managed to sabotage that pipeline by increasing the pressure inside the pipeline. So you open one um, valve on the one side of the pipeline, close it on the other end, and as the uh, gas is being pumped into the pipeline, it, at some point it may explode, which apparently happened in 1982. And a huge explosion was observed, um, so big, the biggest non-nuclear explosion at that to date and was even observable from space, if it happened. Now, the problem is there's only one, one single source for that incident. The Russian denied that it ever happened. Uh, f f Russian publications that came out afterwards ignored this example. So this is an interesting little case study for... What could be possible, yes, in theory, you know, that could be done, but it's also a case study for the need to be very close to the, to the facts, as close as possible, and call into question what people are, are saying uh, for one reason or the other. So I went back to a number of, of, um, of sources on that particular case, trying to, to get to the bottom of it, and it turns out, so I had a conversation even with the residence historian at the, um, at the NSA who used to be at the uh, CIA and he also was skeptical. He didn't know if that actually happened. Now if, if even he doesn't know, um, we, we have, certainly skepticism is, is adequate. And, but let me uh, take a step back from this example and um, look at sabotage more broadly. Remember I said what we're seeing is less violence, not more violence, as a result of cyber attacks. This would be an example for more violence, violent sabotage. But in fact, um, there's another interesting example from 2012. Do some people in the audience possibly remember the Saudi Aramco computer attack in 2012? Saudi Aramco, the oil company, the biggest oil company on the planet in Saudi Arabia was um, attacked by a computer attack. We don't really know who was behind the attack. And what happened is that 30,000 of their computers, their desktop computers, to do all sorts of things like salary and email and just their business, their business not the oil production, but the business uh, level of, of, of the company, 30,000 of their machines were just wouldn't start anymore. So people would come to work in the morning trying to start their computers, and they would just not boot, not start up, because a virus had overwritten an important file inside the computer, effectively deleting all their data. That, was, uh, that amounted to 75% of the company's computers. Huge amount, I mean, huge damage. But, interestingly, nothing violent happened. Nothing kinetic, if you like. No kinetic effect. I mean, a huge effect. And the company was in, in, in panic for an entire week. They had to fix the problem. But the oil production was not affected, and nobody was injured or killed. So that's an interesting new, uh, new thing to appear. Yes? That's a very good question. So usually in such situations, we find the attribution problem. Some of you may have heard of the attribution problem. The problem is how do you 
identify the attacker. Now, part of the attribution problem is not just identifying the how, uh, excuse me, the who, and the how as well. How was it done, but also who did it? But a big important part of the attribution problem is also the question why it was done. So if you don't know who did it, you can't really ask them why they did it, obviously. And um, in this case, we can only speculate about the why. Um, it's difficult. Um, I could start speculating now, but... That it could be done, yeah, that's, that, that, that certainly, that's, yes, that's one of the hypotheses that you find in, in, you know, the intelligence community, for instance. Somebody wanted to see how far they could push it. But we also know, and that's, here it gets a bit murky, but we know from um, revelations around this attack that apparently the attackers tried to affect the oil production. Now, is, do we have an, any engineers in the audience or computer scientists, people with a technical background, just out of curiosity? Nobody? You can say it. I can say it. I, I can just... I feel much safer now. <laughs> if... Um, so you, in, a, in, in such a situation, if you have... Let's make the example of, the, of Saudi Aramco. They have a so-called business network, um, the network inside the company that, you know, you may work at a company, it doesn't really matter what kind of company, it could be a, a supermarket, it could be a small retail store, anything. You have, usually have access to a network of computers that everybody in the company has access to. And then if your company, like Saudi Ramco, runs something like, for instance, the metro network here in, um, in Washington, or a power plant that actually runs generators and whatnot, then there's a separate layer of another network, a control system network. And these two networks may be connected with each other or they may not be connected with each other. If you're doing something really critical, if you're running a nuclear power plant, you don't want those two networks to be connected, at least not in a bidirectional way. Because if somebody has, because it's easy to breach a, a business network. You can send emails out so chances are somebody can somehow get in. But you don't want to be able to jump from a business network down to the control network and then mess with the important stuff that can burn and explode and whatnot. So, so, so if you, um, so, so ideally the two networks, I'm sorry it's getting slightly technical here, ideally those two networks should be what they call air-gapped. There should be a proper gap between the two networks. Nothing that you can use software to bridge, but actually physical, there should be a physical, proper physical distance between, between the networks, to put it bluntly. Anyway, to get, get back to the point you made, yes, the attack tested the waters, the Saudi Aramco attack, but apparently if it's true that they actually tried to do more, then perhaps it was actually a failure, which is an interesting point. So could such an attack be done by Yes, yes. So that's, again, a really interesting question. What are the capabilities that you need for the attack? Do, do you, could this be done by some individual 
who just wants to try how far they can go. And again, let's think about those two layers of networks for a moment. The business network that companies are using, is, it's, it's relatively easy to breach that network. And it's easy because it's also you know, most likely they're using internet browsers, they're, they're, like Chrome or Internet Explorer or Firefox inside the company. And if you find a vulnerability in that software, you can get in. You can also trick somebody to open an email attachment, that kind of thing. But in order to get into the control system network, which may not even be connected to the internet, which makes it more difficult to get in, you need something else. You need expertise about the particular components running on that network, the type of operating system, the type of hardware that is used. You may even need information, say you're looking at a, at a, at a specific generator, you may, and you want to modify and attack the generator by, by messing with the generator, you, you, do, you need to know specifics of the generator, the frequency of the motor, the currency, whatever, all sorts of technical engineering details in order to modify the output of a process control. So in other words, you need target intelligence. That, that's not necessarily on the internet. You can't find out information on the inside of the North Anna nuclear power plant in Virginia just by Googling around. Right? You need target information. And, um, and that limits the number of attackers. So even if you're a clever hacker, you may not know how to actually modify and mess with a, with a very specific control system. And that's one reason why um, the major attack against Iran's nuclear enrichment program um, that you may have read about in the press, the uh, Stuxnet attack, um, which was, as we know today, done by, by, by the U.S. Uh, by US and, and Israeli intelligence um, agencies, that must have, done, must have been done by a state because individuals just don't know the necessary target information about this uh, nuclear installation. Not because it's so complicated to do it for, an engine, for a, a software developer, but because you need to know the, the handbook of actually messing with that system. So, so much about sabotage. Let me just give you, before I move on to the next, I have three of those, sabotage, espionage, and subversion. Just some important figures. If you look at sabotage in terms of numbers, how often have we seen proper sabotage attacks, both against machines that, they, that may then um, you know, break or stop operating, or against data where somebody deleted significant amounts of data, like in the Saudi Aramco attack? The answer is very rarely have we seen that. Um, we probably will see some more of this in the future. But if you count, for instance, if you talk to the um, people in the Department of Homeland Security in charge of critical infrastructure protection in the United States, they have never experienced an, a successful act of computer sabotage against American critical infrastructure in the past. I'm not saying it's impossible. It is certainly possible, but we haven't seen this yet. The reasons why uh, we haven't seen it yet are, are interesting. We may um, approach, uh, get back to this in the Q&A. Um,
what does that mean in practice, very briefly? What you see here in the, on that slide is, a, is an air defense uh, radar. Some people right now are thinking of about Syria a lot. What, what does cyber mean in Syria? Could we cyber, or could the United States cyber attack Syria if the entire operation moves forward? And the answer is, in theory, yes. Um, Israel has done it already in 2006. They successfully blinded Syrian air defense. 2007, I'm sorry. Successfully blinded Syrian air defenses for a small operation through computer attack. But um, it raises an interesting question. If you deploy a cyber sabotage tool once in a visible way, then people can use the code and people can not use the code to replicate the attack, but they can analyze the code. So it's different from having a gun and shooting at something or a missile and, shooting and, point and uh, targeting a building with a missile, say, or a tank or something, because you can do that again and again. You can repeat it. In cyber attack, for a cyber attack, you cannot necessarily repeat the attack as many times as you like, because once it's public, that other targets can defend themselves by patching their systems. Or it may be so specifically designed for one target that you can't repeat it in the first place. So in other words, if I would be sitting in the Pentagon and I know I have the tools to blind uh, the specific air defense system by computer attack, would I really want to give away that capability in Syria? Is that really important enough? because that capability is you know, hard to develop again. So that's an interesting question to consider. Um, obviously, this is not just a technical question. It goes beyond uh, the technology. Saudi Aramco. Um, just briefly, um, espionage. So I mentioned that um, I need to be conscious of time here. Yeah. Espionage, intelligence operations, in contrast to sabotage, are a massive, in terms of numbers, a huge uh, problem or opportunity, depending on your point of view. It, this happens a lot, and it happens in many countries. This is a very busy space. Sabotage is not a very busy space. It could become more busy in the future, but intelligence operations is where most of the action is taking place. And obviously the revelations um, that are based on the files that Edward Snowden took away from the NSA and GCHQ are adding more detail to that, to that point. Um, so obviously in signal intelligence agencies like NSA or GCHQ and others have adapted to the 21st century, to the internet. I mean, we expect them to do that obviously, and they've done it. Um, so in that context, we have a number of interesting new challenges. Again, you remember I said less violence, less physical risk in the beginning. That applies to, uh, to intelligence operations as well. Think back to the Cold War. It required sometimes a significant amount of risk-taking to bug an embassy you had to infill or to you know, dig the Berlin Tunnel to um, penetrate targets that are well defended, even in, in signal intelligence, sending, U uh, sending um, 
submarines to listen to, to, to traffic, etc. Today, the level of risk involved in uh, intelligence operations, I mean, it depends on the operation uh, entirely. In humans, things have also changed, but um, there's still a lot of risk. But there are computer espionage operations where the actual physical and personal risk for the operators who do that kind of operation is very low. You can do it remotely. You can hide your traces very well. And, um, and that's a new, a new situation. Or, yeah, I think it is a new situation. Uh, even, if you, even if you're a careful historian, you have to acknowledge that some of the technical changes that we are observing here are We've never been here before. Mankind has never had that amount of power, the same power to communicate on such a scale. And obviously that changes the, the business of, of signals intelligence fundamentally, as we are finding out right now. Again, the attribution problem is, is a very um, important one here. Does anybody recognize the building on that picture? Cobar Towers? Cobar Towers, no. No, it's, uh, it's the building, so some of you may remember, it, last year the uh, Washington-based company Mandiant, computer company, um, managed to essentially point the finger at a specific Chinese unit, um, military unit, PLA unit, 61398, they have numbers, and um, that's allegedly their headquarters building in Beijing. So that's an interesting case of computer espionage um, where somebody um, here in the U.S. was able to gather evidence that um, implicated some specific actor in another country in large-scale spying operations. It's an interesting report. I can recommend it. The, the, the title of the report is APT1, but of course I discuss it in detail in the book. Um, and. Um, let me just use that example to make a point that I already touched on, the attribution problem. The, in this space, it is extremely difficult to point the finger at somebody um, in, in, um, who is spying on you. So let, let me see. Let, let's see we're in the spy museum. Let's see how much uh, some people, I don't know, may have an appropriate background for that question, but let's see how much you think like spies. Let's, I'll give you an example. In, um, early in the Syria operation, uh, in the Syrian chemical attacks, a couple of days ago, the Washington Post and the New York Times had this number uh, that um, the U.S. Uh, um, government has provided, but I think 1,437, I'm not sure the number is correct, but a very specific number, 1,437, fatalities as a result of the chemical attacks. Now, what do you think? Is that a signals intelligence source or a human intelligence source? Is that distinction clear? So, yeah. Any ideas? The guy from Twitter. <laughs> Twitter, okay, that would be signals intelligence. Or so social media. No, but more seriously, anybody has a, has a clue what the number can tell us here? Why do you say that? So, 
So he's saying humans would tend to round it off to something else. That's why it's a signals intelligence. That would be my first yeah. Observation. Okay. Well, it's an interesting one, and I, I think uh, it's probably exactly wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> because <laughs> here's why. If you have, if let's assume a Syrian general in charge of the chemical uh, weapons unit would call uh, Assad or somebody else in the military in Syria and say, oh, by, we have X number of casualties, 1,437 casualties. It doesn't matter whether the number is correct or not. He uses that number on the phone or in an email or something like that. And somebody intercepts that email. Right? If you are then publishing that number, that general knows that he's that he's been intercepted. So only publishing something like a specific number can already compromise your sources. That's the key problem that you have in this space as well. So what Mandiant did was highly controversial in that report because by publishing the information about how they found this unit in China, they are possibly compromising their methods and their uh, intelligence uh, techniques in, a, in an important way. So uh, the, point, the point here is um, that the attribution problem has, is, is very complex at very different layers. People on the inside may know more than they can actually say. Um, even if they say what they know, they may not be able to provide the evidence for the public to really believe them because that would compromise their sources. And um, the other side, um, in this case China, obviously denied uh, this entire affair, can still deny information, uh, can still deny allegations, etc. So attribution here, a very, very difficult um, situation. I think I'm talking too much, so I'll move on quickly. Um, I'll skip that and um, just mention the third big theme in, in, in cyber security. So we had uh, sabotage, damaging machines and, and companies. We had intelligence operations, uh, exfiltrating data. And now I think subversion is another se separate problem. Subversion, what I mean by that is using the internet, anything, f to undermine the authority of a government. So think the Arab Spring, or even think Al-Qaeda to a degree. People, any, anybody who's trying to undermine somebody else's authority. Obviously, it's much easier to do that today than it was uh, even 20 years ago, because it's easier to organize yourself. It's easier to find people who share your views, your radical views. Um, I mean, by the way, there is good and bad subversion. Uh, you know, dissidents in China who are, just want a democracy are also subversives because they're subversive against an authoritarian regime. So we have to be careful. Subverse, subversion is not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's not like terrorism, which tends to be universally seen as bad. Um, so, but the point here is subversion has become easier as well um, because of these new technologies and possibly even less violent because in previous times, Political violence was a means to call the authority and the legitimacy of a government into question, very efficient one. Today, and the Arab Spring in the early, um, 
in the early days, more than two years ago, demonstrated this. It's possible to use the, do that via online um, communication and social media, etc. So that's an interesting new dynamic, as well, that I that I think we should we should keep in mind. Um, <clears throat> Very briefly, I'd like to uh, to make a final last argument um, that that's, um, that I think you may find interesting. Often when we speak about cyber war, the assumption is that there are capabilities, that we have offensive capabilities as well as defensive capabilities. So for instance, the NSA um, has offensive, obviously, capabilities, but also they're doing defensive work. And in this entire debate on cyber security, cyber weapons, and cyber war, one big question is how, does the off, how, do, how do offensive investments, offensive capabilities relate to defense? But is a good offense the best defense in cyberspace? That's basically the question. Is a good offense the best defense in cyberspace? And the answer is very... The answer is different from other arenas. So if you think of, a, of, of, of conventional weapons or military units, you can use them for offensive purposes but also for defensive purposes. They, they just, you can shift them around, basically, from the defense to the offense, almost like in sports. Not so here. Once you develop a very specific offensive tool, like, for instance, the Iranian uh, worm that I mentioned, the Stuxnet worm, was very shrewd, very clever piece of malware, highly intelligence-intensive. Um, once you have that, you can't really use it to defend anything. It's only a very—it's a one-shot weapon for one specific target, um, and you can use it over a long period of time, as it was done covertly. But you can't use it on the defensive side. So. That, I think, especially here in the United States, is a problem because the investments that the government is making in the offense are not necessarily making the country any safer. Making American power companies, water companies, banks, etc., safer. That um, has a couple of reasons. I'll give you, just give you one. If you're a young and talented computer Co uh, software developer today, um, you probably don't want to work here on the uh, west, on the east coast anyway, and, and probably you're working for Facebook or, or Google or another uh, startup in California already. Those who actually consider working for the government or the intelligence community, because they don't pay that well and they're kind of boring to work there in this environment, very stiff, um, I'm told. Um, they are probably inclined to work for the cool guys up in Fort Meade and not for the boring guys at the Department of Homeland Security. In other words, they're probably inclined to work on the offense, not on the defense, because the offense is just sexier than the defense. That's one problem that relates to offense-defense here. There are others. I don't want to talk too much, so um, perhaps we can open this up for... Uh, for a bit of a Q&A to make it more lively. Yes. Yeah. 
If you, if you like, you can also introduce yourself. Uh, thank you. Um, and that is, perhaps we don't know the full capabilities and destructiveness of cyber warfare because certainly state agencies, which might have the resources to launch a formidable attack. Yeah. I mean, the United States is at peace with the countries that seem to be capable of doing the most damage. Yeah. And so they may be probing us, but there'd be no, nothing, I mean, if they did an all-out thing, it could be traced back to them and then be yeah. perhaps cause for real war, so yes. Yes. I don't, do we really know what other countries are capable of? Yes, this is, you're making a very um, important point, and yes, you're right. We don't exactly, well, maybe some people know, but the public, we in the public don't know what other countries precisely are capable of. Now, the problem basically that you're referring to, there are two problems. One is, those with the capabilities to do serious harm right now don't have the will to do serious harm. Those with the will to do serious harm don't have the capabilities to do so yet. That may change at some point. And of course, the second point you're making is also correct that just because we haven't seen something in the past doesn't mean it will not happen in the future. Um, obviously, history has surprises in stock for us. So yes, that surprise could happen in cyber, in the context of cyber attacks. But still, I think even in that context, we have to uh, look at the technological possibilities. If you ask people who study this, engineers, control system experts, if you ask them, could you imagine a cyber attack that could be as painful and costly and devastating, say, as an airstrike, as, as an air, you know, something. We want, if you want to think big, you can say, could we imagine a, a cyber attack as bad as the Blitz in, in, in London? And my answer to that would be, I, I, have, I struggle to see how that could be possible. Could a cyber attack cut by the electrical grid so it couldn't be used? That could be devastating. Yeah, could, could a cyber attack uh, cause a blackout? Um, electrical uh, grid blackout, yes, that, that could happen. I mean, we haven't seen it yet in the past. It's never happened in the past. But uh, certainly, basically, what you need is you only need to trip. So depending on the country and the grid you're talking about, they're very different in design. But um, say in the United Kingdom, if you trip a certain amount of generating capacity, I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but we're talking about something between 4 and, and, and 6%, roughly, of the amount of electricity that is being fed into the grid. If you trip a large, uh, four, you know, more than that, in, in one moment, two power plants possibly, two big plants at the same time, the frequency of the entire grid, which is at 50 hertz or something, would drop below a critical level and the entire or a significant amount of the grid could collapse as a result of that. So there's a chain reaction in, in, grid, in grid security here. Uh, we could speculate about this uh, problem. Um, the short answer is it could be done, but um, 
I hesitate. Usually when we had power outages in the past, it was possible to bring the grid back up within a reasonable time so cities won't, you know, be forced down to their knees um, and need to evac evacuate people or something like that. So it's not as bad as an airstrike, even if you have, have a blackout, I think. Uh, yes, there are various uh, groups of actors, if you will, in cyberspace, nation states, uh, organized crime, hacktivists, terrorist organizations. Uh, some, as you mentioned, have the capability but not the will. Uh, but with increased collaboration between some of these groups, more available technology, better tools, uh, as well as increase uh, outsourcing or experts for hire, hire. Uh, wouldn't this increase the possibility or probability that some type of conflict could occur? Yes. Um, in a way, that is already happening. So, for instance, Iran is, has invested heavily in building offensive computer attack capabilities. I mean, we have to remember they, Iran was at the receiving end of the most sophisticated computer attack ever, Stuxnet. So obviously, from an Iranian perspective, it makes a lot of sense to, uh, to learn from that lesson and, and do something on their own. The suspicion is that they were behind this Saudi Aramco attack that I mentioned earlier, but we can't really prove that on the pub in the public domain, at least. Um, and... Um, so in a way, that is already happening. The, 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 the competition um, is, uh, is underway. Uh, we, can, we could imagine that non-state actors get their hands on dangerous technology as well. But the really interesting question is why that hasn't happened yet. Why haven't we seen a cyber terrorist attack yet? And um, Again, this, the answering that question, there's a degree of speculation in there. Certainly, they don't have the capabilities um, yet, and the target intelligence. It may also be more difficult than, of course, if you talk to engineers who are specialists in Siemens control systems that run in specific plants, they tell you, oh, it's so easy to attack this uh, system. But, of course, that's, you know, they're engineers. They would, you would want them to say that. It's more difficult for people like you and me, to attack those systems because we don't know how to do it. And I suppose that applies to some of the militants as well. Um, no problem. Wait, you, I wanted to say something else. Um, yeah, it'll come back, sorry. But um, ma'am, you wanted to ask a question as well. Drone. Uh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Anyone can, you know, throw up a, a drone. What part do you think, and without any supervision, what part do you think that something, you know, might occur because of that? You know, I'm, I'm thinking it's it's not it's it's almost like a car. Yes. You want to buy a drone? You put it up. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, and use and because of drones being computer controlled as well as cars these days, really, and even toilets now, I'm reading. 
there is more potential to sabotage these systems. Yes, that's certainly a concern. Many people have that concern. Um, it's usually the in the discussion here, the Internet of Things, you know, lots of things being connected to the Internet, cars, fridges, um, drones not necessarily connected to the Internet, but also, you know, you could, you could think about scenarios of taking over a drone. Again, we haven't seen any of that yet, and, but I fully expect some precedents to happen at some point in the next years. So that's to be expected. But again, there are a couple of things that should give us that should, be, should lead us to be cautious and also perhaps somewhat optimistic. If we're, we are seeing the first fatal car accident as a result of a, possibly even an attack on a car control system, there will be massive pressure on car producers to secure their systems. And that's certainly possible. So. Um, that's one thing that I, I think once incidents start happening, then the level of security that companies have to build into their systems will, will rise. There's no question. Likewise, if there will be a blackout at some point caused by a, by a cyber attack, I would actually, I, w I mean, I would not start thinking, oh, my God, my book will not sell anymore. <laughs> Instead, I would be actually quite optimistic because then this will be a wake-up call for many of the vendors who are producing insecure systems. In a way, the, the lack of a more serious attack, I mean, this sounds very cynical. I, I don't want to overstate the point. But, but in a way, we need a little bit of a wake-up call at some point. The wake-up call, though, doesn't, it doesn't help if everybody talks about cyber war all the time because that has exactly the wrong effect. Because one of the assumptions if you talk cyber war is oh, now we're at cyber peace, and maybe sometime cyber war comes around and then we need to do something around. And others, that's wrong. We are not, I mean, the problem is serious already now, and um, the cyber war image is misleading. The other assumption is that, well, the government is in charge, or the military is in charge of war, so I don't have to do something. I can be individuals or companies. That's also misleading because... Individuals have responsibility for their security online. How many of you are using a password manager? I'm curious. Anybody? You? Two. So maybe we have one or two people in the audience who are using a password manager. You what, know what a password? Could you describe it? <laughs> so a password manager is a software. So you all probably have many accounts, you know, for various things online. Uh, your email, maybe your bank, your Facebook. Whatever you're using, the New York Times subscription that you have, anything you, that comes to mind. And most of you will probably use not just one password. If anybody is using the same, same single password for all accounts, you're, you're in trouble. You shouldn't do that. But most of you will probably use variations of passwords. So you have one password, spy on me, one, two, three, spy on me, one, two, three, four, five, spy on me with capital letters, etc. things like that. That's easy to crack because they're kind of, you know, <laughs> like each other. And you also shouldn't do that. Ideally, you, you, you should never use a word that's in a dictionary because you can just run dictionaries across uh, as a password cracking method. So dictionary password, dictionary words and names uh, by, definition, by definition insecure. By, de by contrast, a password like 
capital X, one star, uh, lowercase y, nine, quotation mark, you know, safer. <laughs> problem is, <laughs> problem is, nobody remembers that, that such a password. That's where a password manager comes in. The password manager remembers passwords for you and automatically fills them in. And the password manager remembers different passwords at the same time, obviously. So there's no risk of somebody reusing the password across your, all of your accounts. Things like that. I mean, the government is not in charge of doing that. That's you. And companies, and that, but that's cyber war, if you like, right? The same applies to companies. They are responsible for their own security measures, not the government. So cyber war also is misleading in that respect. Do we know what the objective of the Sexnet attack was? And if we do, was it achieved? And, and, and if it was achieved, is it a model for building such kind of attack systems, improving them for the future, for example? Hmm. Or, or do you say, that you, you intimated, once you use something like that, you can't use it again? Yeah, that's uh, uh, spot on, um, the question. So, first question, part of your question was, what was the objective of Stuxnet and was it achieved? The answer is, I think, if we look at the available sources, the objective was to, to delay or possibly degrade the Iranian um, nuclear enrichment program. By, but it was a psychological operation. That's the key here. Everybody thinks it's only a computer attack attacking the systems. But in fact, the goal seems to have been to mess with the minds of the Iranian engineers and the regime. Because if you think, remember, that they didn't know that they were being attacked by a computer code. They, think, they thought this stuff is just not working right? because they didn't install it properly. So if you think you are the problem, it's really hard to fix but if you think, if you notice that somebody's doing this to you, then you can fix the problem and move on. So if you, if you take that as, a, as the actual objective, the psychological operation, make them think they're incompetent and just give up. Then it failed in the moment when it was discovered, even without, know, even without knowing who did it. Just the fact that it was discovered told the Iranians, oh, somebody did this to us, so it's not, we're not stupid. We just, you know, we, somebody did this to us. Um, that's one reading of events. Uh, but the other part of your question is perhaps even more interesting. Can it be reused, Stuxnet? Or can it be a model for follow-on attacks? Um, there are two things to be said in response to that, I think. One is, if you, if you look, look at Stuxnet as the, the piece of software that was used, it had generic components, um, that could be used against a very large number of systems, like Windows vulnerabilities were built in. And it had highly specific components that were only operational, only worked in Natanz against the specific centrifuges that it was attacking. And it had components that were between, so generic and very specific components. And the key question is, can you, could you sort of you know, remove the sharp cone of specific components and add a new specific component at the, at the sharp tip of that piece of software, if you like, and then use it to attack something else? And the answer is, um, 
possibly, if the vulnerabilities that you're using on the generic side hadn't been exposed yet. But the very specific payload in order to affect a specific control system, again, this is hard to do. I mean, you can't just, you can't just uh, build this. I, I hear that sometimes people from the intelligence community told me they would basically get, you know, from their superiors, political or military, the order, build me a cyber Tomahawk missile. I want a cyber Tomahawk missile. I'm overstating, you know, slightly only. Uh, and the, the, pro the problem is you can't do that. You can't just build a cyber Tomahawk missile and then fire it against whatever you want to hit. You ha it has to be tailor-made for the target that you're trying to hit. That's the challenge. Dr. Ridd. I'm sorry, John, you're going to have to ask him afterward because we want to give people who might have to leave a chance to have Dr. Ridd sign his book. It is for sale in the back of the room. We thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.